Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing, uh, as I hit on in my prayer a little bit, uh, this uh, series that we've been in that's covering our uh, mission and values as a church. We've said uh, that the mission statement of our church is that we exist to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. Right? See Jesus. We believe that every single one of us, every day of our lives, has the same deepest need. Right? That every Sunday, whether you're the pastor in the pulpit or the toddler in the nursery, that you show up on Sunday with the same biggest need, which is to see Jesus. To see Jesus as he really is, unclouded by all of the false beliefs and cultural narratives that might surround him, but to see him as he really is. So that we can be transformed to display him in our world. Two weeks ago, we talked about displaying his truth, right? That Jesus gives us a message to declare. That he is the one who we believe is the truth, the way, and the life. Last week, we looked at displaying the beauty of Jesus, right? That Jesus isn't just a message to be preached, but that that he shows us a way to live a more beautiful life and to radiate his beauty out into the world. And so today, we're going to look at how we can display the goodness of Jesus, Right in a world that knows so little of goodness, a world that doubts whether or not um, Christianity or organized religion has anything that's genuinely morally good to offer to the world. We want to answer that question with a resounding yes, that Jesus offers goodness and shows us the way to goodness in this world. And so we're going to look at a passage that has uh, perhaps more than any other teaching uh, in the New Testament shaped the way the church practices goodness in this world, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading this morning is Luke uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. One of, uh, in my opinion, the great heroes of the faith uh, that the United States of America has ever produced is a little-known man, uh, a man by the name of Levi Coffin. Levi's story, uh, he lived in the uh, 1800s, just before and then stretching to just after the era of the American Civil War. He grew up in rural North Carolina, And though he was white and living in rural North Carolina, neither his grandparents nor his parents had ever owned slaves. It wasn't until he was seven years old and working uh, by the side of the road one day, his father there chopping wood, that Levi Coffin saw a group of of slaves, uh, enslaved Africans, walking down the road, chained two by two and chained together and being driven from behind by a white man on a horse with a whip. Young uh, Levi Coffin had never seen anything like this before, and his heart was broken. In one moment, uh, this tragic uh, procession stopped. And little seven-year-old Levi went and asked one of these men, why are you chained like this? The man looked at Levi and said, they have taken us away from our wives and our children They chain us together lest we should make our escape and go back to them. These words stuck with this seven-year-old every day for the rest of his life. He thought in that moment how he couldn't bear to think of what it would be like if somebody took his father from his family. And these words seared themselves into his memory and changed the trajectory of his life. In his autobiography, he says this, he says that this moment was the first awakening of sympathy with the oppressed. It was the beginning of his hatred for oppression and injustice in every form. Levi's life was changed changed, uh, forever. He went on, uh, he and his family later on moved from North Carolina to Newport, Indiana, where he found out that he lived along a spoke of the Underground Railroad that network of individuals and safe houses that helped to provide safe passage for escaped uh, slaves to the north. And so he began turning his house into an outpost of the Underground Railroad to a station. Over the course of his life, he sheltered some 3,000 escaped slaves. He eventually took on the title, uh, he didn't take it himself, but he, he was given the title of the president of the Underground Railroad. He was deeply informed to do this by his Christian faith. If you read again in his autobiography, he says that he believed it was simply a Christian duty to restore these men and women to a condition fitting their identity as bearers of the image of God. He understood this call to be uh, part of a divine calling from God. He says, my life is in the hands of my divine master, and I am captive to his call to love my neighbor as myself. 
Though he bore the title of the president of the Underground Railroad, he might himself have been uh, more happy with another title, one that he uh, gladly took on himself, he and his co-conspirators in the Underground Railroad, and that's the title of Good Samaritan. This was a story that shaped uh, the moral imagination of Levi Coffin and of so many who partnered with him in this work. Again, in his autobiography, Coffin says that he believed from the time he was a very young child that it was right to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and minister to those who had fallen among thieves and were wounded, using the language of the Good Samaritan. The editor of his autobiography calls Coffin the Good Samaritan of hunted flesh and blood, with skin not colored like his own, under whose roof were sheltered over 3,000 fugitive slaves. Today we're talking about that element of our mission, which is to display the goodness of Jesus in our world. Right? There is, uh, it is really, really easy uh, to tell stories of the church's badness. Right? There are no shortage of stories, even from Coffin's own era, of the church's uh, partnership and complicity in the evil of slavery. And yet there are also stories of amazing goodness, of radical goodness. And it's true that when the church displays the goodness of Jesus, even in just a little bit, right, even in the midst of a world that knows so much sadness and badness, that when the church shows out just a little bit of Jesus' own goodness, that the world takes notice, that the world looks in, and says maybe real goodness is possible. Maybe uh, those forces that we love to belittle of things like organized religion can have a shaping influence on the character of a person in such a way, and in Coffin's case, can so shape the moral imagination of a child that he spends or she spends the rest of her life laboring to bring the goodness of Jesus and his kingdom about in this world. When the church shows Jesus' goodness, the world stands on its tippy toes to see what's there, what reality is motivating this show of love and compassion and goodness. And so let's look at this, this text that we read today. It begins with the story of a lawyer who comes to test Jesus. Now, this isn't uh, a lawyer in the... Uh, Morgan and Morgan, Perry Mason's sense of being a lawyer. Uh, this is a religious lawyer, right? He's, he's a pract- practitioner not of civil law, but of the Jewish religious law. And so he's coming to test Jesus. Jesus, a religious teacher in Israel, a rabbi in Israel. And he's coming not as an honest inquirer, right? He's not coming uh, because he lacks information that he wants Jesus to teach him. He's coming to put Jesus to the test. He's coming to find out whether Jesus' answers to his questions pass the muster, right? Whether Jesus can be viewed as an orthodox rabbi or not. And so you know in the Gospels, when you find somebody who's in the position of testing Jesus, uh, that it's not going to go well for them, uh, right? We know in our, own, in our own lives, when we find ourselves testing Jesus, evaluating Jesus to find out whether or not his teachings rise to the level of our own enlightenment, that we're in trouble, right? The way that we're supposed to approach Jesus, right, isn't to test him against what we think is right. 
But it's to go to Jesus to learn from him, to to let Jesus change our mind about what's right and good. And so Jesus, uh, this lawyer comes to test Jesus. He asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And now we should should say that there's a part of us as, uh, you know, reformed evangelical uh, Christians that wants Jesus to set this man straight. Right? Isn't there just a part of you that when when he asks, what should I do to inherit eternal life, expects Jesus to say something like, don't you know there's nothing you can do, right? That it's not your own goodness. It's not your own righteousness, but it's it's only because of grace, right? But what we have to understand, nothing Jesus says here contradicts that, right? Nothing in Jesus contradicts Paul who says that righteousness is by faith from first to last. Right, This man's question isn't about how do I get into eternal life. It's not how do I get into the covenant people of God. It's the question of once I'm in, once I'm in covenant with God, how do I live? How would God have me live my life and order my life in such a way that I inherit the prize, that I, that I inherit eternal life with his people? And so Jesus, as he often does, turns it around. He never, asks, he never actually answers the man's question. Instead, he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the guy, much credit to him, gets it right. He has the right answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same way that Jesus himself answered this question on multiple occasions. That the entire law is summed up in a life of love, love to God and love to neighbor. And that's where things uh, begin to come off the rails for our lawyer. Because I believe that he feels in that moment the, the weight of that command. Love the Lord your God with absolutely everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he realizes that that is a high calling to love your neighbors, to love the people that you meet in the same way that you love yourself. Right To seek uh, their goodness, their well-being, their flourishing, their health and happiness and, and, and food and all that they need to survive. Care as much about that as you do about your own well-being. That you and your family have enough clothes on your back and bread on your table and roof over your head. Treat your neighbors in the same way. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? See, that is, uh, in some ways, the, the question, right? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love like this, right? If I have to love my neighbor as myself, surely you don't mean that I have to love everybody like that way because that is just utterly impractical. To think that I have to love every uh, stranger and ne'er-do-well that I walk past as though I love them like myself, that's not doable. So who do I have to love that way? And now the average person in Israel at this time, uh, and really everybody in the ancient world, would have answered that question in a particular way. They would have thought, well, the people that are your neighbors are your family. They're your blood. Maybe in Israel, they're your tribe, right? Remember, Israel was born into the 12 tribes. They each had their land. They each had their village. But so everybody would put some boundary around the marker of the neighbor to say, love these people and not the other. Right? Treat these people like family and treat these people like strangers and treat these people like enemies. So what about Jesus? Jesus, you've said a lot of pretty radical things about God's love for the Gentiles, his love for the outcast. So who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? 
Or maybe to put uh, a little finer point on it, who am I allowed to hate? Right? If I have to love one group of people, who are the people that I can get by with hating? Maybe it's just the hatred of cold indifference. Maybe it's who do I get to not care about? Who do I get to not lose any sleep over if they're suffering? And then who am I bound to love? And so at this point, Jesus launches into a story. And he says there was a man who was walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is a common road, uh, Jerusalem and Jericho, separated by about 15 miles, and yet they represent a pretty steep uh, change in elevation to where to go up to Jerusalem was a mountain climb. Two of the characters who pass by, a priest and a Levite, who choose to do nothing, uh, they would have been expected along this road. We're, we're, archaeologists believe that about half of the priestly class of Israel lived in Jericho. It was about 15 miles apart. Uh, they had to go up to Jerusalem on a regular basis. Uh, and so, like any of us, how do you live close without paying those high Jerusalem rents and prices? Uh, you live in Jericho, and then you go when it's your turn to serve. And so this man who was beaten and laying by the side of the road, two men pass by. The first is a, le- uh, <clears throat> the first is a priest. Now, the priest uh, is the pinnacle of Israel's religious hierarchy. These are uh, the ones who, by birth, were born into service in the temple. As such, they were also born into uh, the administration of charity. It was the job of the priests and the Levites to distribute alms to the poor uh, within the Israelite system. So uh, this is someone who is expected to love the poor. This is someone who by his job description, by what he spent much of his life doing, was expected to distribute uh, goods and wealth uh, to those in need within the people of Israel. And yet the priests pass by on the other side. Next up comes a Levite. Now you might think if the priests are uh, the varsity of Israel's priesthood, the Levites are the junior varsity. Right? If, if, uh, if the priests are major league, this is AAA. Uh, they, are, they served in the temple, they assisted around the temple, but they weren't a part uh, of the, the highest of the priestly class. And so uh, the Israelites, the, the ones hearing this story, might have thought, oh, okay, I know what kind of story this is. There's a, a brother Israelite that's in a ditch, and the priest who ought to know better passes by, and now a lowly Levite comes up, and surely he's going to be the hero in the story. He's going to do the right thing and help out this brother in need. But we're told that the Levite, just like the priests, passes by on the other side. We're not given any reason why, uh, right? We can speculate. Perhaps it was uh, owing to their own fear, right? Who knows? This, uh, if this was a common place, uh, along this well-trotted uh, road where thieves hung out. Maybe if they were to stop, get off their, their donkey and go to help, maybe the priests were still around and they'd be next. Uh, some have speculated that there was some concern that this man who was left half dead would actually die or that he had been dead and that touching him would make the priest or the Levite unclean and therefore unable to go into the temple to do their priestly work. 
Maybe it was just out of simple self-preservation, inconvenience. We don't really know, but we know our own hearts, right? We can speculate. We know all the reasons that we've uh, avoided being called in to dangerous and messy situations. But a Samaritan passes by on the other side, sees the man, and moves towards him in love. Now, it's hard to, to really overestimate how shocking this would have been to Jesus' audience, to the lawyer who came to test him. The, the division between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, was about as deep as any we can imagine in contemporary culture. It had, uh, it had ethnic overtones to it, that they believed that the uh, Samaritans were, were uh, half-breeds, that they were the result of uh, Assyrian occupiers uh, starting families with the Israelite uh, residents of the land. And so they were half Assyrian, half Israelite. So there was an ethnic division between the two of them. There was a religious division between the two of them. The Samaritans kept parts of Israel's religion, but not others. So for instance, they kept the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, but didn't have the law and the prophets, the rest of it uh, they threw out. They believed instead of worshiping in Jerusalem, you should worship on Mount Gerizim. So there was ethnic division, there was religious division. Tons of hatred and prejudice. A couple of rabbinic teachings from around this time can give you a flavor for it. One rabbi said this, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is worse than the one who eats the flesh of swine. Now, you know, listen, we're... We're in, we're in the South, it's, we, we like eating some pulled pork, some, uh, some ribs, all that. But we know that the Israelites, uh, the Jews, to eat pork was, was something that would make someone unclean. And so they're saying, look, you're better off eating pork than sitting at a Samaritan's table. A common prayer of the time, another rabbi records, was, Lord, thank you for not making me a slave, a woman, or a Samaritan. Now, there's a lot to get in there, but we'll, we'll just say that's, uh, that indicates some level of the animosity that was there. And yet, this hated Samaritan sees this Israelite in need and crosses over and tends to the man's wounds. We're told that he tends to his wounds, he sets him on his own animal, he takes him to the inn. In this, uh, we need to, to hear, there's three calls that we need to hear in this. The call to see, the call to become, and the call to restore. The call to see is that to become a neighbor means that we're called to open up our eyes, to see the need around us with the eyes of compassion, right? What's the difference between uh, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan? It's that they saw with different eyes, right? The, the priest and the Levite, saw what was going on. They saw the man in the ditch. But instead of seeing the man with the eyes of compassion, they saw him with eyes of indifference. They saw him with eyes uh, that looked away. Right? We all know what it is in those moments. Uh, right? You, you, we've all felt the moment where you, you're pulling up to a stop sign or a stoplight, and there's somebody there in the median with the, with the sign out. And you kind of do the math of like, okay, if I stop here, maybe I won't have to pull up right next to him and look over. Because there's something about seeing, right? There's something about sitting just on the other side of that little piece of glass 
in seeing and them knowing you're seeing and then, making, then being presented with a decision. Right? What do I do? Do I react? Do I not react? Do I give? Do I not give? Do I give money? Do I give food? What, how, what do I do? And so the priests and the Levites see and they look away. They see and they go on their way. But the, the Samaritan looks and instead of seeing all of the reasons why he might not help, right? I'm a Samaritan. He's an Israelite. He probably doesn't want me to help anyway, right? We all know what Israelites are like. So even if I do help, he's not going not to appreciate it, right? He's probably, this Israelite's probably said and done horrible things to other Samaritans. He probably tells Samaritan jokes when he thinks there's none around, right? This is, what, what do I do? This man who probably hates me and whose, whose family has caused me pain. He doesn't see all of the reasons why he might not help. He doesn't see all that they have a part, uh, indifference. Instead, he sees their commonality. He sees a human being in need. He feels the solidarity of knowing that what unites them as human beings is deeper than what might divide them culturally, religiously, or ethnically. There's a famous uh, passage in the work of Thomas Merton. Merton was a, um, he was a Roman Catholic monk who uh, devoted most of his life to living in almost absolute solitude uh, in an abbey just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he tells a story in his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, of going into Louisville to run some errands. Apparently monks also have to run into town to get some stuff. And here's the way Merton tells this story. He says, In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I was theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a human, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate, as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me. Now that I realize what we all are, and if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun. Merton's realization is that he couldn't ultimately, in his desire to isolate, his desire to live a faithful life alone with God, he couldn't ultimately escape his membership in the human family. Right? And what's the basis in which he realizes it? It's this is the humanity that God was born into. Right? This is the humanity that Jesus was born into. Jesus didn't consider unity with humanity of all races, all stripes, all cultures, all income levels, all of it, to be beneath his station, but to join into it. And he said, look, if, if this is the humanity that Jesus joined himself to in the incarnation, who am I to keep a distance from any one of them? Every man, woman, and child that I meet is a part of the humanity that Jesus came for, that Jesus took on to himself. And so he, he identified and realized this solidarity, this vision that he had far more in common with the man in the ditch uh, than anything that could separate uh, them from each other. And so he saw not the excuses, not the barriers, but their common humanity. And he felt moved 
to help. You'll note uh, as we go on in this story that not only does Jesus, you know, Jesus is asked a question and he tells a story. Like that's, a, that's a fairly annoying habit to have in a conversation, right? How do you, you ask a simple, straightforward question, who is my neighbor? And instead you get, well, once upon a time, you know, that, that's not what I asked. Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus launches into a story instead. And if you notice, the story itself doesn't even answer the question, right? The, the, the question is, who is my neighbor? And that by the time Jesus in his roundabout way gets around to answering it, it's turned around to where now the question is, who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the thieves, right? It's not who is the neighbor, who is your neighbor, but what does it look like to be a neighbor? Right, so that neighboring becomes not a, not a label that you can put on people to say this person's a neighbor, this person's not. You have to love this person. You don't have to love that person. But it becomes a calling that we receive. So it's not about whether or not you can identify who, who do you owe your love, who counts as your neighbor. But have you taken on a calling to be a neighbor to everyone that you meet and that you encounter in your life? It's a call to become a neighbor. It's a call to embrace. Jesus, in turning around the question, reveals that it was the wrong question all along. It was always what we're told that he asked the question because he what, sought to justify himself. Right? He was looking for a loophole. He was looking for a way to alleviate his conscience, and it was the wrong question all along. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, writing about this, parag- uh, about this parable, put it this way. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor at the time of World War II, a man who... Uh, ended up losing his life uh, because he was a a resistor of of the Nazi party and actually was involved in a plot that didn't work to try to kill Hitler. Um, And this is what Bonhoeffer writes. Who is my neighbor? The whole story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' singular rejection and destruction of this question as satanic. It is rebellion against God's commandment itself. As if to say, I want to be obedient, but God will not tell me how I can be so. But the question, what should I do, was the first betrayal. The answer is, do the commandment that you know. The question, who is my neighbor, is the question in which disobedience justifies itself. The answer is, you yourself are the neighbor. Go and be obedient in acts of love. Think of what answering that question cost a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, to ask the question, will I be a neighbor to my Jewish neighbors, to my neighbors who are facing ghettoization, my neighbors who are eventually facing the death camps? Will I take up the call to be a neighbor, to recognize the image of God in these men and women? And the truth is, over the course of his lifetime, Bonhoeffer changed dramatically. He was haunted for his entire life by the fact that he refused to perform the wedding of his sister who was marrying a Jewish man. He said, no. He said, I won't do it out of, out of prejudice. And over the course of his life, uh, came to be deeply convicted of that, recognizing the image of God in his Jewish neighbors as well, even to the point of it costing him his own life. Love of neighbor always costs us. Love of neighbor always costs us, well, in the example of Bonhoeffer, everything. Right, look at what this man gives. First, he risks his life not knowing if the thieves are there. Then he puts the man on his own animal, 
right? So if you put a, a person on your own animal, you're now walking. And so he continues on the journey. He takes them to an inn. He gives them two denarii, which we're told was enough for about two weeks' stay in the inn. So he puts them up for two weeks. You do the math on whatever that would be in today's uh, money to put somebody up for two weeks in a hotel. Not only does he put them up for two weeks, then he tells the innkeeper if he incurs any incidentals, right, if there's any additional costs, just put it on me, I'll come back and I'll pay it, right? Keys to the mini bar, the cable, all of it, right? Whatever, whatever, he, whatever bill he racks up at the hotel, whatever it takes to get him back to health, it's on me. He gives with incredible self-generosity. He gives with a self-giving love of his own wealth. Taking on the call of a neighbor and seeing the pain of our neighbors always requires a willingness to give personally of ourselves, to engage in love, to build relationship, and to give of ourselves. It's so easy, I think, for us to treat the suffering of our neighbors as hypothetical, right? I mean, you know, this is one of, our, one of the conversations that we have politically that we continue to have, right? Among the poor, how, what, what's the government's responsibility? What's charity's responsibility? What's my responsibility? What's your responsibility? And there is room for us to, I mean, we ought to, as Christians, think deeply about those things, right? Have, a, have, a, have an approach and know what you believe about them. But it's so easy for the plight of our neighbors to exist at the level of the hypothetical, to exist of there's, there's suffering people out there, and I hope somebody does something about that. And yet the call of the Good Samaritan is that love always, always entails self-sacrifice, right? It's never as easy as stroking a check or pulling a lever on a vote, that it means going the way of Jesus, entering into a self-sacrificial relationship, being willing to see, and then being willing to answer the call. So it's a call to see. It's a call to become Right? Not just to look for the neighbor, but to become a neighbor. And then finally, it's a call to restoration. Look, he doesn't just help the man out of the trouble. Right? He doesn't just help him, get him out, bandage his wounds, and move on his way. His vision for this neighbor of his is nothing less than restoration. Puts him up for two weeks to get healthy so he can get out and on his feet and going about his life. His vision for this man isn't just that he'd be out of harm's way, no longer bleeding, no longer dying but that he would be set up for a whole life, for a life in which he's restored to health and wholeness and vitality. One of the books uh, that we've read as a church, I know our diaconates read it, our staff has, has read it, uh, is a wonderful little book called Helping, uh, When Helping Hurts. It's a great book. It acknowledges the reality that very often in our well-meaning attempts to help our neighbors, we end up uh, not helping but hurting. And the authors uh, identify three different ways of helping our neighbors without hurting. Relief, development, and justice. Right? Relief is seeing the man in the ditch and saying, you know what? I don't care how he got in the ditch. I don't care uh, what happens after he gets out of the ditch. I see a man in a ditch and I need to help. Right? Uh, I don't care uh, what bad decisions he made in his life that ended up with him in this position. Right? Relief is just the movement that says, I see somebody in need, I got to go help. And it's a good impulse. And at times it's a right impulse. Development is, I'm going to take this man, I'm going to help him get out of the ditch, and then I'm going to get him on my animal, I'm going to take him to the hotel, and I'm going to help him get back up on his feet 
so that he can live his life again. Right? One of the ways that they put it in the book is relief, give a man to fish, or give a man a fish. Development, teach a man to fish. Right? So he can then uh, go on with his life. And then justice. If development is teach a man to fish, justice is to ask the question, why aren't there any fish in this lake? Right? Why, why did we used to pull fish out of this lake, but now everybody just sits around it and we never can get any? Right? Justice is to take the step of saying, look, I've gotten the man out of the ditch. I've helped getting him up off, up off his feet. But now what do we do about this road from Jericho to Jerusalem in which people keep falling into the hands of robbers? It's to say, let's not keep running the same animals into the same ditch again and again and again, but let's see how we can make this situation whole. And so the man seeks the holistic good of his neighbor that he sees, and he sets him on a path to wholeness and to health. Our man from the beginning of our story today, Levi Cotton, did the same thing. Most of us would say that it would be enough to give your home to the Underground Railroad and to help 3,000 men, women, and children out of slavery. For most of us, that would be like, you know what? Good job. But not only did he shelter so many uh, escaped slaves that his house became known as the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad, but he also, prior to leaving North Carolina, established a Sunday school to teach enslaved Africans how to read the Bible. He went on uh, into Indiana uh, to create businesses which purposely employed uh, freed slaves. He says, because I know that they were often unjustly refused and neglected in the job market. And he did this to enable them to earn money so that they could potentially purchase their relatives' freedom from slavery. In 1847, he moved to Cincinnati and he opened a wholesale warehouse that sold goods made by former slaves, and he distributed the wealth to the community. In 1854, he established an orphanage for African-American children. During the Civil War, he collected food and distributed it to former slaves in the North. And after the war, he has helped freed slaves to establish their own businesses. He had a vision for holistic flourishing, right? Not just helping for a moment, but helping a community Right? Not just to get out of the ditch, not just to get whole from the ditch, but to live in such a way that they could avoid the ditch. It was a vision for holistic flourishing. It's the, the calling that we celebrated with Joy Corps. It's what they do in Thailand and India, not just sharing the gospel, but helping men and women to, to earn their way out of de facto slavery uh, and oftentimes uh, actual slavery in Southeast Asia. It's the call of this parable. You know, in closing, this parable uh, is an unusual story. It works on us as its readers and its hearers in unusual ways. You know, the first audience of this story would have identified, above all, they wouldn't have identified with the priest. They were ordinary people. They wouldn't have identified with the Levite. They certainly wouldn't have identified with the Samaritan. They would have identified with the everyday, ordinary Israelite who found themselves beaten and left for dead along the side of the road. That would have been the person they had the most in common with. And the story is told in such a way that the person like them isn't the hero. The person like them is the one who has to receive mercy. The early church, uh, almost universally in interpreting this passage, identified it as a story about Jesus, right? That Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. 
He's the one who didn't keep his distance from us when we were dead on the side of the road, but he crossed over, not just from safety into danger, but from heaven to earth. He didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. And then he set us up. He put us in a home, right? He rooted us in the church where our wounds could be tended, where we could grow up back into health and wholeness and vitality. But Jesus is the good Samaritan. And yet, Jesus himself ends it with you, go and do likewise. Right? Receive mercy from me. Recognize that I am the only good Samaritan. I'm the one who comes to you in your weakness and in your frailty and in your need, and I help you. How then can you help but go and do likewise? To see in every neighbor that you run into, every friend that you meet, every stranger you encounter, even in the face of your enemies, a neighbor to love as Christ has loved you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to reflect your goodness in our world. Lord, we sometimes feel like this world is hopelessly divided into who is our neighbor and who isn't, who's our friend and who's our enemy. And yet, Lord Jesus, you would transform our vision so that as we look out, we see only neighbors because we've been transformed by this call to be a neighbor. As you, Lord Jesus, showed yourself to be our great neighbor, the neighbor who left heaven for earth, who left uh, the pureness of unbroken fellowship with your Father to take on our humanity for the sake of love. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the countless ways that we divide ourselves. Forgive us for the countless ways that we justify ourselves. For all of the ways that we look out uh, on the human community and we say, oh, no, well, those people in that neighborhood, those aren't our people. Or those people that look like that or talk like that or eat like that or live like that, those aren't our people. Lord Jesus, help our lives to be transformed by this call to be good neighbors so that we might more fully and faithfully display the goodness of Jesus in our world. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.